And so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, for those of you who are note takers, our study this week is titled God in Three Persons. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, where Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then notice in verse 2 how Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, brings in the triune nature of God. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, that would be the Holy Spirit, and for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, of course, the Son of God. Well, Father, this morning it is our privilege to be in this place, and as we have just worshipped you, through the songs that we've sung and the lyrics that we have used to express what is in our heart and mind toward you, we ask, Lord, and hope that through our worship, that in some way we've touched your heart and blessed you as our Heavenly Father, through our thanksgiving and our praise and our worship of which you are so worthy. And Father, we pray that the worship has also prepared our hearts and our minds to receive the implanted word that we will study this morning. Father, we recognize that you are beyond our ability to fully comprehend, and as we delve into this next attribute of yours, we recognize that we're limited in our understanding, that we need help. And so would you teach us through your word and by your spirit, and most importantly, may our hearts be open to receive the truth of your word as it is spoken. And we ask all of this confidently and know that you'll do these things because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with an illustration. A number of years ago, <laughs> there were two Jehovah's Witnesses standing on my doorstep. And they began to shift anxiously and nervously as they were wrestling with a dilemma that they knew was irreconcilable that I had presented to them. They were looking at their watches and looking down the corner and trying to find some way to segue off of my doorstep because they were stuck. (laughs) For they had just read, out loud no less, two scriptures from their own tarnished translation of the Bible that completely dismantled the false doctrine that they hold on the person and the nature of God. The dilemma began when I asked my visitors, really the interrupters of my breakfast, <laughs> to read to me John 6:46 from their Bible. I think we've got a slide to show you how it reads in the New World Trashla- Translation. <laughs> Not that any man has seen the Father, Jesus said, except the one who is from God. This one is seeing the Father. So just to clarify, to make sure that they were understanding and I, were, and I was understanding what they were reading and what Jesus was communicating, I asked these Jehovah's Witnesses, who is the Father that Jesus speaks of in this verse? To which they enthusiastically replied, well, God, of course. To which I replied, by God, do you mean Jehovah? Yes, God is Jehovah, was the enthusiastic reply of the witnesses on my doorstep. Now, to make sure we're all on the same page, I just wanted to ask, I said, so let me make sure I got this right, make sure that I understand what you are communicating. Jesus is telling us here in John 6, 46, that no human being from the Garden of Eden to this present day has ever seen Jehovah, who you identified as God the Father. Is that correct? 
And now they were nodding and winking and looking at each other like, we got a convert on the line. We're going to be able to you know, tell the watchtower that we got Pastor Paul Lester, right? Well, I had one more scripture that I wanted them to read. And so if you could put up that next slide, I, I said, perhaps you could help me reconcile then what you just read in John 6, 46 with what your Bible says in Genesis 18. And so I had them read aloud. And once again, the JWs quickly turned in their Bible to Genesis 18, and they began with a loud voice, clear voice. And then as they read those first two words, suddenly it became a halting speech and a quiet whisper as they recognized they had just completely contradicted themselves. Because in Genesis 18:1, in their Bible says, afterward, Jehovah appeared to him, that is Abraham, among the big trees at Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of the tent during the hottest part of the day. Ah, <laughs> the irreconcilable dilemma that my Jehovah's Witnesses visitors now felt. Because Jesus clearly said in John 6 that no one has seen the Father, which the Jehovah's Witnesses, who were very anxious and nervous and looking for a way out, had affirmed is none other than Jehovah. But here in their own translation of the Bible, they discovered that Abraham not only saw Jehovah, but he ate with Jehovah, or Abraham ate with Jehovah, walked with Jehovah, negotiated over Sodom and Gomorrah with Jehovah. And so I asked the now less than confident ladies on my doorstep, was Jesus wrong? Did Jesus lie? Where there in John 6, 46, he said that no one has seen the Father, who, by the way, you identified as Jehovah. Well, of course, they had no answer, thus their dilemma, because the Jehovah's Witness, while they reject the deity of Christ, they acknowledge him to be a perfect man. So they can't say that Jesus was wrong because now he would no longer be perfect. Nor could they affirm that he had lied because, again, that would make him less than perfect. The only way you can reconcile these two scriptures and many, 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 many others is to acknowledge, as Daniel Amos sang back in the day, Jesus is Jehovah. And that any time we read in the Bible God showing up in a human form that we can touch, that we can see, that we can hear, that we can eat with, he always shows up in the person of God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. A mystery for sure, but the clear declaration of Scripture that one God is manifest in three persons. Now, by the way, if you're interested in apologetics and how to use what I just shared with those visitors or interrupters of your breakfast... When we post the sermon this week, there will be a PDF download walking you through how to use these two scriptures and a third one to help the Jehovah's Witness see this irreconcilable problem in their Bible and hopefully to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Well, last week, we learned that God is one, which means that there is only one God. The fancy theological terminology we use is that, that it speaks of God's unity. There's just one God. And we learn that God's oneness also means that he has no parts, no division, and no conflict within himself, what theologians call divine simplicity. And to those biblical revelations, we now add the attribute of God's triunity. Again, that is that God exists as one God, somehow eternally and externally as three persons. 
Well, let's begin with the definition of the Trinity because this is where people kind of get fuzzy and some people, even Christians, uh, start making claims or start saying things that really are not true about the triune nature of God. So there's a lot of great definitions we could look up, but here's a simple one. I quote, there is only one God, monotheism, but there are three persons in that one God, the Trinity. Now, friends, understand when I use the word persons, we don't mean people, human beings. Rather, the word person simply describes a being who has an intellect, the ability to process information and to think, who has a a will, in other words, to choose between this and that and the other thing. A person who has consciousness, in other words, someone who is aware of themselves, that they exist, and aware of all that exists around them. Someone that, ex- that has personality, in other words, that character that defines that person, that unique individual, and emotion. We understand then that the first person and the most perfect person is God. All of us who have been created by God were created, as we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the image of God. That is, he gave us personhood. Now, of course, we are very different than God, for God is a pure spirit, And so we don't exactly reflect the perfect image of God, but nonetheless, we do have an intellect, a will, a consciousness, a personality, and emotion. Furthermore, God is unique in that he is one being manifest externally as three individuals. Some Bible students have suggested that the image of God is seen in man and that we are a three-part being with a body, a soul, and a spirit. But again, different than God because at death, the soul and the spirit are separated from the body. With God, there is never separation. There is unity always between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we define the Trinity, we might say that God is one what? God. But manifest as three whos, three persons. Or we might say that God is one in his being, who has absolute unity in his essence, the three in one. Where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, each person is God, and yet, beyond our comprehension, there's only one God. And while admittedly all of that is a brain twister and will keep you up at night if you're really thinking about it and and philosophizing over it and and, 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 kind of engaging your mind, And some would even suggest that it's illogical. The reality is that the triune nature of God is an inescapable truth revealed on the pages of Scripture as my Jehovah Witness visitors discovered. That is, you cannot reconcile Genesis to Revelation and the nature of God as he has revealed himself unless you accept what he has told us about himself. There's only one God, but he's manifest as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, you have to go to extraordinary lengths to deny the biblical testimony that God is triune in nature as we're gonna see in our time this morning. So that brings us to the question, how do we know, other than the couple of scriptures I just pointed out, that God exists as a trinity, one God and three persons? Well, of course, we look to the Bible because you and I as Christians recognize this is our final authority on all things related to God. That is, the Bible is our ultimate source of theology. In other words, if you're going to study God, which is what the word theology means, this is our textbook. And the reality is that my opinion and your opinion 
and our private interpretations and speculations are of absolutely no value at all because none of us can speak with any authority separate from the Bible and the nature of God. All we have are guesses. <laughs> this and this alone tells us who God is. And friends, that's because God exists beyond our ability to fully comprehend him. Oh, it's true that we can come to some conclusions about who he is based on what we see and observe in the universe, but to know that he is, as revealed in scripture, an infinite spirit who transcends all that he created and even our mental capacity to understand him, therefore, when it comes to his nature, his name, what he's like, and most importantly, how we might know him, we cannot discover nature. It comes to us only from God's word. And so when it comes to the nature of the Bible, the only authoritative source of knowledge available to you and me is the Bible. So I want to give you six points from Scripture. And I could give you much more, but my time is limited, and I'm going to go fast. And if you want the notes, you can't keep up, just shoot me an email, and I will be happy to send you a PDF copy of our notes this morning. If you don't know my email, just call the church office. I'll be happy to supply it. Well, friends, as we learned last week, the Bible unapologetically proclaims there is only one God, but just with just as much clarity, the Bible tells us that that one God exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the six proof texts that I want to offer you this morning from the scriptures are the following. Number one, that God's triune nature is revealed in the original Hebrew text when it describes God as Elohim. Number two, that each person, the Trinity, possesses the unique attributes of God. Number three, that each person, the Trinity, is involved in the divine work of God. In other words, only the work that only God can do, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in. Number four, each person, the Trinity, is called God. Number five, Father and Son share many titles that are unique and limited only to God. And number six, the Father and Son are worshipped as God. And I hope by looking at these in depth that you will have a firm biblical foundation for this important doctrine because this doctrine is really the foundation where people are either in Christ or out of Christ. In other words, every cult you will run into makes a mistake about the person and the nature of God himself. And so these are important topics to talk about. Again, the inescapable conclusion is the Bible tells us there is one essence, God, manifests as three persons. So first of all, let's look at the word Elohim. Well, the triune nature of God is revealed in the very first verse of the Bible, which I think is very significant. In other words, the first words that God speaks to mankind, he reveals his triune nature. Genesis 1.1 reads thus, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Will you go back and look that word God in your Bible? It is the Hebrew word Elohim. What's fascinating is that grammatically Elohim is constructed in a plural form, but it's written as if it's singular because it's connected with the verb to create, the Hebrew word bara. Now, I'm going to offend the ears of any of you who are English majors with what I'm about to say. Genesis 1-1 would be equivalent in English in saying, the men is. Doesn't that hurt? The men is, no, 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 no. The man is, that makes sense, but the men is, that's exactly what Elohim means, a plurality in a singular form. 
Bible scholar Joseph Rotherham points out that the word Elohim is used in the first verse of the Bible means literally a plural of quality, the Godhead, clearly inferring the triune nature of God. Oh, but critics would say, yeah, but that, that's, a, that's a Christian doctrine. The Jews know nothing of that. Oh, I would respond, not so. The Hebrew scholar from the second century AD, Simeon bar Yoki, says this, and we'll put this next slide up because it's important for you to see this. And I quote, he says, come and see the mystery of the word Elohim. There are three degrees, each degree by itself alone. And yet notwithstanding, they are all one, joined together in one and are not divided from one another. Well, friends, you'd be hard pressed to find any Christian who could provide a clearer description of the Trinity. And the point is that the fact that God is one, the concept that God is one manifest in triunity of beings, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity isn't something that the New Testament made up to prop prop up the deity of Christ. No, it's found right here in the Hebrew Bible. And I think, again, it's highly significant that it's in the very first verse of the Bible. It's almost as if God, in his divine revelation of mankind, wanted to lay a foundational truth in our lives that if you want to know the true and the living God, there is one God, but he's manifest as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Point in fact, the Trinity is so clear as, or excuse me, in the word Elohim, that 16th century Bible translator Henry Ainsworth wondered aloud, and I quote, he said, he must be strangely prejudiced indeed who cannot see the doctrine of a trinity and of a trinity in unity as expressed in these words, the word Elohim. In fact, those who reject the trinity must go to great lengths to change the clear, plain meaning of the text. In other words, they have to have you read the text and then give it new meaning because you're looking at, mm, that's, not, that's not there. And they're literally changing the meaning of words. Or, as we saw with the Jehovah's Witnesses, in a vain attempt to deny the triunity of God, they will add words or take away words or change God from a big G to a little g to make sure that we understand that Jesus isn't God. But that's just playing fast and loose with the word of God. We can't do that. And so the word Elohim tells us that God is one, manifests as three individuals. Well, secondly, we look at the divine attributes. I think you would all agree, and it goes without saying, that anyone who possesses any of the divine attributes, by definition, must be God. In other words, if we identify an individual as having all power, well, by definition, that's God, because only God has all power. And by the way, only one can have all power. You can't have two with all power because it's like, no, no, there's one with all power, not two, right? Because if you have all of something, then you have all of, all of it. Nobody else can have any of it. But the Bible tells us that each person in the Godhead has all power. Huh. Somehow three are one. Let me illustrate. Genesis 17:1. God the Father said to Abraham, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus, the son of God, told the apostle John in the Revelation, chapter one, verse eight. He declared, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and is to come, the almighty. 
Job testifying of God who created him said, the spirit of God, that is the Holy Spirit, made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all ascribed by scripture as possessing all power. But again, only one can have all power. And the only way to reconcile that is there's one God, one essence that has all power somehow manifest as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, again, you can look at all the attributes of God and see that Father, Son, Holy Spirit exhibit each of the attributes. All-knowing, having all wisdom, unchanging, eternal, holy. And later this week when we post this study, I will also have a PDF that has kind of a, a table where you have the attributes of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then scriptures that describe each of those attributes to God. And if you're interested in this kind of, this kind of stuff, I encourage you to download it because it's helpful when you're sharing with people that are trapped in the cults. Well, number three, the divine work of God. In other words, there's work that only God can do. For example, to create the universe. But closer to home, what we find is that the Bible presents each member of the Trinity intimately involved in the work of salvation. That is the work of God to bring you and I, sinners born separate from God, into a right relationship with him where our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and we get to enjoy eternity with him forever. By way of example, and we could look at many scriptures, but here's one. God the Father loved us and sent his son to die for us, John 3, 16. God the Son provides the means of our salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection, 1 John 2, 2. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, points us to the Savior, regenerates us with his power, seals us as a guarantee of our salvation, and empowers us to walk with Christ. John 14, Ephesians 1. I like the way that um, one man put it. He said, the Father planned for our salvation before the world began. The Son provided salvation by offering himself as a sacrifice at an appointed time in the world. And the Holy Spirit proclaims our need for salvation by conviction in the world today. I like the way the author of Hebrews kind of sums it up. Here's the work of salvation as the author of Hebrews describes in Hebrews 9.14. He says, of how much more shall the blood of Christ, the Son of God, who through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, that is God the Father, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, the author of Hebrews as well as dozens of other scriptures make it clear that there are three distinct persons in the Trinity and yet only one God. And fascinating, the author of Hebrews reminds us that of the three, only one spilled his blood. That is, it wasn't the Father and the Holy Spirit that was penned to that cruel Roman cross. Rather, it was Jesus, the Son of God, who took on human flesh that he might suffer and die in our place. Number four, the Bible tells us, again, there's only one God, and yet we find that each member of the Trinity in the Bible is called God. Again, Genesis 17, 1, God the Father, I am almighty God. Thomas, after the resurrection, when he saw Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God, John 20, 28. And in Acts chapter 5, Peter, when he is addressing Ananias for his sin, equates the Holy Spirit with God. Listen to what Peter says. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart 
to lie to the Holy Spirit. So again, we stop and recognize Peter is accusing us of lying to who? The Holy Spirit. And then Peter continues that you kept back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Oh, who do you lie to? The Holy Spirit, to God. Number five, the father and son share many titles that are divine. Titles like names in the scripture offer or have great significance. And when they're used of God, they communicate something about his nature. In other words, who he is. And if you're looking for a Bible study this year, in other words, you're into February and thinking, I, I know I'm supposed to spend more time in the word. I just don't know what subject, what topic. Can I encourage you to prayerfully think about looking at the distinct names of God from Genesis to Revelation. Each and every one tells us a little something different about himself. Think about the Revelation, chapter one. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear that word revelation, oftentimes people think, oh, that means you know, scary stuff and, and, and judgment and all that. No, no, the word revelation is the Greek apocalypsis. And the Greek apocalypsis, it, it speaks of a statue maybe made of an emperor or a famous warrior that was going to be crafted and then put into a, to the center of a city. And then all the people come together to, to, to rejoice over this emperor or this, or this, or this warrior, right? And so they would keep that statue covered. And on the appointed day, when they were going to reveal the statue to everyone, it was the apocalypsis. They pulled the cover off the statue, and now you could see it. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as you go through the revelation, you look at the names and the titles that are ascribed to Jesus, and each and every one tells us more and more and more about who he is to blow our minds so that we recognize Jesus is God. Well, concerning those titles... In Isaiah 44, 6, God the Father, speaking through Isaiah, says this, and listen to what the Father says. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and besides me there is no God. <laughs> That's pretty clear. There's one God, and he's the first and the last. And again, back in Isaiah, it's the Father, Yahweh, speaking. That title, first and last, speaks of God's eternality. That is, he's got no beginning and no end. He has always existed and always will. And that's different than everything else in the creation. Because everything else in creation, including angels and the universe, and you and me, we have a beginning. God doesn't have a beginning. He's before all things, and he will exist after all things. And thus, it's of no small consequence that three times in the revelation that Jesus takes to himself the same title that God the Father used in Isaiah 44, 6. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. He says to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't like that. They say, oh, no, no, that's the Father. Keep reading. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen. In other words, without controversy. The speaker in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18 is only, can only be the Son of God, Jesus Christ, because the Father has never been killed, buried, and resurrected, nor has the Holy Spirit been killed, buried, and resurrected, only Jesus Christ. And friends, there's only one first and the last, the one God who exists beyond our understanding and comprehension is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number six, and by the way, we could keep going all day, but I know you gotta get to lunch, and 
paddle out of the parking lot, so. The Bible is very clear that to worship anyone but God is idolatry. And the Bible is just as clear that God hates idolatry. Point in fact, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness at that final temptation, as recorded in Matthew chapter four, Jesus says to Satan, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. John in the Revelation, when you read through it on two occasions, he's so overwhelmed by all that he's seeing, he just falls on his face in front of his angel guide to, to begin to worship because he's just blown out. And the angel, whoa, whoa, whoa don't do that. <laughs> Come on, John, stand up. And the angel tells him, listen, I'm a fellow servant just like you. Worship God. But what we find is that Jesus accepted worship. For example, after he calmed the storm of the Sea of Galilee, we're told in Matthew 14, verse 33, that the frightened disciples, they came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And God the Father even himself commanded the angelic host to worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hebrews chapter one, verse six, listen to what the Father says. But when he again that he there is the father, brings the firstborn into the world, that is Jesus. He, the father says, let all the angels of God worship him, that is the son. Well, friends, I think it, it's clear that if God himself commands man and angels to worship the son, that Jesus Christ must be God. Again, God in three persons. Let me give you a couple other scriptures to hang your theology on. First would be Isaiah 48, 13. Listen to the Old Testament testimony of the three different persons within the Trinity. Isaiah 48, 16 says, and now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Notice three individuals within that one verse. That is God the Father, and by the way, the word Lord there is Yahweh, so it clearly speaking of God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, called the Spirit here, have sent who? Me, that is the Son, into the world to do the work of salvation. In this one verse, then, we see a picture of the triunity of God. In the New Testament, again, we could point to dozens of scriptures, but a, a beautiful example is at Jesus' baptism, as described by Matthew in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 of his gospel. Listen to the description that Matthew gives us. When he had been baptized, Jesus, God the Son, came up immediately out of the water, and behold, heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, the voice of the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see here in Matthew 3 that there are three distinct persons. It's not just one God, you know, kind of appearing in different versions of himself or different modes or whatever. There are three distinct people. Jesus is in the river. God the Holy Spirit is descending from heaven to earth to alight upon Jesus. And God the Father who remains in heaven speaks over Jesus Christ. Clearly three distinct persons involved in Jesus' baptism. Not one person operating in three different modes. And again, to these few examples, we could have the testimony of many additional scriptures, but I hope that these are sufficient to really give you a biblical foundation for the truth that there is one God, 
manifest as three persons. Well, let's talk about the implications. And again, this is important because, as I mentioned at the beginning, every Christian cult that you can name foundationally gets this wrong. In other words, they misunderstand the nature of God, the persons of God, the unique character of God, and then they go off in some weird direction. So let me begin by describing what the doctrine of of the Trinity does not mean, okay? It does not mean. Number one, it does not mean that there are three gods. No, there's one God who's manifest as three persons. The idea that there's three gods, three distinct gods, is a heresy called tritheism. Tri for three, theism for God. It's an ancient heresy that denies God's unity that we learned about last week, that God is one. There's only one God. But today is practiced by groups like the Mormons. Joseph Smith, right before he died, the founder of Mormonism, declared with great clarity that he held to this false doctrine when he wrote, these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, constitute three distinct personages and three gods. In other words, Joseph Smith misunderstood the Trinity. Instead, he adhered to this false doctrine of tritheism, but kind of with a twist because Mormons also teach what's called Henoism. So another word to write down and use at Starbucks this week, right? So people, ooh, man, you are just a scholar, aren't you? Henoism. What that means is there's kind of a ruling class of gods with little gods under them. So like in Roman mythology, Greek mythology, you have Zeus and Jupiter, right? The ruling chief god and then the little gods under them. So Mormonism believes that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three gods ruling and reigning over all the little gods. Who are the little gods? Ah, good Mormon men. (laughs) Sorry, ladies, you're out, right? And by the way, in Mormon theology, anyone with dark skin wasn't allowed to be a god either. They kind of had to mess with that doctor a little bit, but here's the point. Mormons teach that if you're a good Mormon man at the resurrection, you get your own planet and you become a little god. And there's three gods that are ruling and reigning over you. Well, that's false. That's tritheism with a twist. Well, number two, nor does the Trinity mean that God has three modes of being. And that's an ancient heresy called modalism. It's heretical because it denies the plurality of persons that God had. In other words, it says, no, there are not three distinct persons. Modalism claims that, there, claims that there's one person, God, who manifests himself in three different modes, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So for example, modalism is something like this. I could say that I am the son of my parents, the husband of my wife, and the father of my children. Three different modes, son, father, husband, one person. That's a heresy. That's not what the Trinity teaches. And it's false because the father is not the son, and the son is not the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead are distinctive persons. Today, we have examples of groups that hold to this false teaching called modalism. Groups, for example, like the United Pentecostal Church or the United Apostolic Churches, and that's why sometimes you'll hear them referred to as oneness Pentecostals because they deny the Trinity. Well, the Trinity simply means that God is a triunity, which I think is actually a better term to describe that God is a plurality of persons within a unity of essence. One God, three persons. One what God, three who's, the persons in God. Now again, we confess that the Trinity is a mystery beyond our human comprehension. We believe it to be true because, again, God's word declares it to be true. 
And so even if it doesn't fit into my logical thinking, I accept it because the Bible says it's true. Let me illustrate it this way. I think we would all agree that God, in his fullness, is way beyond who we can comprehend completely. In other words, God is just so big, so great, so immense, there's no way that we can get a hold of who he is. And if God wanted to hide himself from his creation, including you and me, he could do so and we would never be able to find him. And that's because he who is infinite is by definition beyond the comprehension of you and me who have finite minds, right? He's bigger than our brains can comprehend. For example, a finite being, as finite beings, you and I do not have the philosophical capacity nor scientific tools to discover and find the infinite God who's chosen to hide himself. All that we could discern about God is what we can see and observe in nature. And to, to look at this amazing, immense creation, the order to it, life itself, recognized from the micro to the macro, someone had to make all this stuff. This doesn't just happen by accident. And so we could conclude that there is a creator, but what his name is, and whether he's good or whether he's evil, and whether he wants to have a relationship with us, and if he does, how do we have a relationship with him? None of that we can know by observation of nature. We can only know it by God's word. And since, again, he is an infinite being, there are aspects of what he has revealed to us, even in scripture, that are gonna be beyond our finite capacity to fully comprehend. And since the mystery of, or excuse me, such is the mystery of the Trinity, God's revelation of himself that there's one God who exists as three persons. A mystery, but not a contradiction. I can express the Trinity mathematically, where one times one times one is not three, it's one. Now, without controversy, there are three ones on this side of the equation, but one times one times one will always and only be one. Nor can we, out of hand, dismiss the Trinity because, again, we recognize logically that what is finite cannot understand all that is infinite, even, it's, even if it doesn't make sense to us. Well, because the Trinity is difficult to understand, many people try to use an analogy to help us to get our mind around it. The unfortunate thing is that every analogy that you've probably ever heard or used communicates a heresy. So if you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, the Trinity is like an egg, it has a shell, it has a yolk and a white. <laughs> Partialism. <laughs> right. uh, how about St. Patrick and the shamrock? We got one leaf with three clovers on it. Mm, nope, nope, that's uh, not gonna work either. How about uh, water? It appears as, uh, as a liquid, a solid, and, and, and uh, Liquid salt and a gas, right? Mm, no, that's modalism. Well, how about the sun where you got the star, the light, and the heat? Nope. Again, that's Arianism, where the sun, right, creates the light and the heat, but the light and the heat are not equal to the sun. All of those are heresies. So the best analogy to represent the Trinity that we have, at least in my opinion, and, and you're welcome to have a different opinion, is one that St. Augustine brought to us about 1,600 years ago. He was thinking about all this, and he looked at 
1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where John tells us that God is love. And he stopped and he thought, well, now wait a minute. Intuitively, we know that love requires a subject, a lover, and an object, the one who is beloved, and the expression of the love. And so he suggested then that the Trinity could be expressed by God's love. In other words, to think, well, now wait a minute, in eternity past, before God created anything, who did God love? He's always been love, even before he created things that he could love, like you and me. So how did God express love before he created stuff? And Augustine suggested, right, that the triunity of God, the Trinity, of, informs us that from all eternity past, before anything existed at all, that God was able to express perfect love where the Father is the lover, the subject, the Son is the beloved, the object, and the Holy Spirit is the expression of that love. Not a perfect analogy when describing an infinite God, but perhaps the best we can do, at least St. Augustine thought so, and I have nothing intellectually to compete with him, so I'm gonna go for it. Now, if you want some fun, don't do it right now on your iPhone or your Android, but after church, you go ahead and get on YouTube and look up St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. <laughs> and it's, you'll know you're in the right place where you see two goofy-looking guys who are supposed to be native Irishmen that St. Patrick's trying to teach about the Trinity. It's a lot of fun. Anyway, that's what theologians do late at night to entertain themselves. All right, objections, because again, there are a lot of people who object the idea that God is a triunity. I'm not going to deal with all of them. I'm just going to deal with two. These are the ones that the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Way International, one is Pentecostals, they're going to use when they come to your door. The first objection, they say, well, the Bible doesn't have the word Trinity. And their argument goes like this. If the word isn't in the Bible, then it's not a biblical truth. But that's just a silly smokescreen because the reality is that every cult member who denies the Trinity believes in a whole lot of theological words that aren't in the Bible. So by way of example, every Jehovah's Witness, right, uh, every, every well, one is Pentecostal, they believe that God is unchanging. Well, the word we use to describe that is his immutability. And so you'll hear these theologians from these different cults talk about God's immutability, God's immutability, God. And what they mean is that God is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? That there's no shadow or turning within him. He never changes. Well, you could just point out uh, the word immutability is not on the Bible. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean it's not true. It's just a word to help us capture a concept that the Bible may take an entire verse or a paragraph or the entire revelation of Genesis to Revelation to communicate. It's just a helpful tool. So the argument that the Trinity isn't true because the word is in the Bible is without any merit at all. Now, the second one is the one that I have seen so many Christians stumbled by, and so I really want to, to, to communicate this to you so you didn't get wiped out at the door, right? Or at the mall, wherever you run into these cult members. And that is that cult members love to point out that the night before Jesus was crucified, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to God. And their argument is, well, obviously Jesus isn't God because he prayed to God, right? For deliverance and, and for strength and all that. We'll back up a little bit. That's not exactly accurate. No, no, you look at the gospel accounts and what we find is that Jesus, the son, prayed to his heavenly father. There is nothing in the scriptures in question that ever tell us that Jesus is not God. No, it just says that Jesus, the son, prayed to his father. 
And that fits perfectly with what we know and understand of Jesus' nature because Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that when Jesus became a human being, that he willingly subjected himself to live as a man, a human man with limitations like hunger and thirst and, and fatigue and all those things. They put aside all his divine attributes, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his immutability, all they put it all aside to live as a human being. Therefore, we recognize that there's no contradiction that Jesus in his humanity would cry out to his heavenly father for the strength that he would need physically and emotionally and spiritually to endure the horrors of the cross that waited for him. But none of that diminishes the deity of Christ. It just tells us that Jesus was operating out of his humanity. It doesn't mean he's not God, nor does it contradict the monotheistic nature that there's one God as three persons. Well, friends, I want to leave the best for last, and that is the blessing of the triunity of God. In other words, all this is important. I really, I know some of it's academic, and some are thinking, oh, this is way too much. You need this to defend yourself against the cults. Because the largest percentage of people who get sucked into the cults are Christians who don't know their Bible. So we need to know what the Bible says to defend ourselves and our family and friends. Well, the benefit of the triune nature of God, oh, there are many blessings and benefits to those who come to know God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Not the least of which, as we've demonstrated, helps us to reconcile the testimony of Scripture. One God manifests in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity puts that all together. But perhaps the most intimate and precious blessing of the Trinity, the one that I want to leave you with this morning, is that the person of God the Son made God himself knowable to you and me. Back to John 6, 46. Remember at the beginning we read that text where Jesus said, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. And that's true because as I described, God is greater than his creation. Where would we even look? Okay, am I looking at the belly button? What am I looking at, right? I mean, it's like, no, he's bigger than all of creation. We can't comprehend that. We can't, we can't see that. We don't have the capacity to even relate to him in that sense. But when God wants to communicate with people, he takes on the flesh of a human being. And when Jesus took on the human body, he made God like one of us. So that the birth there in Bethlehem as Mary and Joseph took that baby, as Mary held that little newborn child next to her heart, she was literally holding God close to her heart. When Jesus reached out to touch the rotting skin of a leper, that leper, when he felt the hand touch his head and he became clean, it was the hand of God that he felt. When Peter slipped beneath the waves, it was the hand of God that took hold of his and pulled him back into the boat. And when the dead body of Lazarus heard the command of Jesus, calling him back from the grave, it was the voice of God himself that he obeyed. And that's the truth that John writes about in 1 John 1.1. Here's how it begins. He says, that which was from the beginning, again, speaking of Jesus, which we have, listened, heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, or in some of your Bible translations, our hands have handled 
This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And the point here is that God, who exists beyond our capacity to know him and to comprehend him, is made knowable because of the Trinity, where God the Son came close to be seen by men, to be heard by people, to be touched, and for all of us who have come to faith in Christ, to experience the reality of God's eternal love through Jesus Christ. And again, while we'll never comprehend fully this infinite God, this side of eternity, the reality is that the only kind of God we could fully comprehend is a God made in our own image. And that's not a God that we want to serve. But God is greater than our understanding. And so we choose to believe God's revelation of himself, that there's one God, manifests somehow eternally and externally as three persons because that's the testimony of the word of God. And therefore we worship, as the Athanasius Creed says, one God in the Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there's one God, or one person, excuse me, of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have one divinity, equal glory, and co-eternal majesty, a mystery we ought not to deny because the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 to reject the Jesus of Scripture is to forego your salvation. In other words, a Jesus who isn't God cannot save you. Only Jesus who is fully God and fully man can save us. And so the Trinity, this triunity, a marvelous truth, an incredible truth, something we'll never fully comprehend but we need to embrace because it's God's testimony of himself. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, this morning we thank you for the revelation of your word. And we freely confess that who you are, your nature, is way bigger than any one of us could ever hope to understand. And so, Lord, we're thankful that you have chosen to communicate with mankind through your word, the Bible, to give us information that will help us to know you, to understand you, and most importantly, that we might have a relationship with you through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you have promised never to leave us or forsake us, but you, Father, you, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, have each promised to take up residence in our heart, to empower us to live a Christ-like life and to navigate this world in a way that will bring you glory. And so, Father, we recognize again that you are greater than we can ever get our heart and mind around, but we're thankful for what you've communicated of yourself. And most importantly, that it's through the triunity of your nature that we experience your love in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.